0: Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages, driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. Today, we are starting a brand new series called "Words from the Cross." I'm really excited about this series excuse me, sorry. We get to walk through the th- the words that Jesus actually said from the cross. There's seven recorded phrases of what Jesus said. Now he may have said other things that nobody took time to write down and then shame on them, right? But, but what we have are seven recorded phrases of Jesus that he said from the cross. And we're going to start and we're going to work for the next seven weeks leading up to Easter. That's right. Easter is seven weeks away. It is fast approaching, right? It is upon us, right? It, it's just right there. And so that means things around here start getting busier. We start ramping up things, doing a little more, and trying to make things better, and get things right, get things in order, and all of that. Sure, that's what that means, but, but Easter is an incredible time for us to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, amen? Like that, is, that is a pivotal moment, not just in, in, in our faith, but in the history of mankind, right? It is a pivotal moment in the history of our world, and so we have the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, which tells us, then, that we serve a living God, which is an incredible thing, we serve a risen savior. So we don't serve a, a, a dead person or a former prophet who died and never rose, right? We serve a living God, which is an incredible, incredible thought. And so this week we start this series. And my heart for you in this series is that we understand the, the, the desperate need of salvation. Now for many of us or most of us or maybe all of us in this room today, we have a relationship with Jesus, right? And we have that, 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 that forgiveness of sin and we've had that repentant moment when, when we are reunited with Christ in relationship or reunited with Father in relationship. But I, my hope is that through this, we understand the depth of the need around us. That it's not just about those of us that are in here on Sunday mornings, but we have a message. We have the words that are needed outside of the walls of this church and that if we are to be the men and women of God that we are called to be, then we need to understand and carry the weight of, of the magnitude of salvation and the desperate need for Jesus. So my heart over these next seven weeks is that we begin to understand the world's need of a savior, the world's need of a savior. So with that being said, let's jump in to this week's and let me set it up this way. So it was a morning not like any other that had ever been the day before was a gruesome, it was a heavy, heavy, more heavy day where, where Jesus was, was put on trial and, and it sent to be beaten and he was struck with a cat of nine tails. According to, to historical studies, that means they struck him 39 times with this whip that had leather strands with, with metal and bit, bits of bone in it so that when it hit the skin, it would dig in and when they would pull back, it would rip. It was a gruesome, bloody affair. And they said 39 lashes was the most any human could endure because 40 would kill a man. So Jesus had just endured the 39 lashes and hanging on to life, Pontius brings him back in front of the people and it was not good enough for them. And they cry out, give us Barabbas. They said, give us the murderer that we know is a murderer and trade him for that man. And finally, Pontius gets to the point to where he washes his hands and says, he's yours. Do with them as you please. And we know then the next day was the time in which they took Jesus and they threw him onto the rugged cross. They threw him onto this rough piece of wood. And it wasn't a soft, gentle laying. This man's already been through a lot. Let's, Let's carefully lay him and place him where he needs to be so that we can get him on the cross. No, they treated him as the scum of the earth. They took him and they threw him onto the cross, grabbed his hands and grabbed his feet, placed somewhere they needed to be so that the the handmade rough nails that were created by the Romans could penetrate through the hands and feet into the wood to, to firmly grip the body to the cross. And as he's laying there hung to the cross, as they begin to lift him and raise him, he utters his first words and he says, Father, forgive them. But they do not know what they're doing. Today, I want us to understand the weight of the words of Jesus in that moment. I want us to feel the weight of what he cried out in that moment and understand the full magnitude of the words, the full depth of those words in that moment, what it meant for you and what it meant for me and what it meant for those who were hanging him on the cross. I want us to walk through this a little bit today. And I know that it already comes out as this heavy Heavy message, but I have to tell you that it is in fact that this is a heavy message. The first thing we need to address is this: that this is a, the prayer is a fulfillment of a prophecy it will just just clarify this. In, in, In Isaiah 53, 12, it says, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And I'll pause for a moment, meaning that he who had not known sin took sin upon himself, right? For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus in that moment interceding on our behalf, interceding for the transgressors as he's being hung to the cross, as he's being hoisted up, as he's being lifted into place. He is interceding. On our behalf, he's fulfilling that prophecy in that moment. But this is not just a moment of fulfilling prophecy. Jesus isn't trying to just mark off a box here and saying, okay, that prophecy has now been fulfilled. What's next, right? That is not the meaning or the intent behind his words because what it does is it reveals the heart of Jesus to us in the very moment. It reveals the heart of Jesus to us in that very moment. I mean, this verse could be understood as a prayer directly uh, prayed for those who nailed him to the cross or directly prayed for those who who had had turned him over to the hands. It could have been a prayer directly for the people that were mocking him and who were shouting at him. It could have been just for those in that moment where Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, And that could be a fair assessment. And we could look at it in those terms and we could say what Jesus did in that moment is he prayed specifically just for those around him and saying, God, they don't realize I'm your son and we just need to let this one go. But I think the weight of his words go far beyond that, right? My question is, where would we be if his prayer was just for them? Where would we be if the prayer just stopped for those few that were around or a part of his crucifixion? Where would we be without the the, the prayer to go on beyond that moment? What if if intercession had ceased after that moment when we know that, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf? What if he would have stopped in that moment? What if the forgiveness Jesus prayed was only for those who nailed him to the cross? The very reason Jesus died was for our forgiveness. His prayer was uttered so that even the greatest of sinners could find a pardon for the sins from the grace that flowed from the cross. It was specific in the moment because he he was saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm praying for those here who are committing probably the worst sin we've ever seen or heard of on the face of the earth. They murdered the Messiah. And he's saying, even for these here, God forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The big thought today, the big idea is this. The depth of our sin is overwhelmed by the height of the grace of Jesus. The depth of our sin is overwhelmed by the height of the grace of Jesus. With that being said, let's, let's work towards an understanding of, of these words of, of from the cross this morning. The first thing in your notes today, as, as we get into this, is the unknown depths of our sin the unknown depths of our sin. I would say that there's not a person in this room that, that truly fully grasps and understands the, the depth and the depravity that, that our sin is, right? We don't fully get it. Uh, it you know, it, it could simply just be about the... the, the murder that was taking place where Jesus is praying and saying, Father, they, they don't know what they're doing. They don't realize I'm your son. They don't know that. They, they don't know that, that, that here I am, the Messiah. They're unaware. So Father, forgive. They just, they're, this is done in ignorance. This is just an act that they just, they're carrying out their orders. And he's saying it just for them. He said, but also at the same time, it could have been a prayer where Jesus was praying over them and bypassing them with his forgiveness and saying, Father, forgive the rest of them. Forgive the rest of them because they don't know what their sin is doing to them. Forgive the rest of them. Forget these right here. We're calling that impardonable. Those who are killing me, they don't receive forgiveness, right? He could have prayed it that way, but he didn't. He didn't pray it either one of those ways. He prayed an all-inclusive prayer for all of us who are ever born and walk on the face of this planet. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Like I said, I don't think we fully understand the effects of sin on the human soul. When a sinner sins, he is casting insult at God. God. In his sin, he calls God a liar. He says, God, you said that that sin was a life of death and that sin is a life of despair. But I say that in my sin, I feel more alive. In my sin, I feel like I have greater life than I've ever known. And so when a sinner sins, he's calling God a liar, saying, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best, you're wrong He's calling God a fool. He's saying, you think that your laws are so great and that they're gonna lead me to greater blessing. You think your way of righteousness is so good that it's gonna lead me to a life that is blessed because of the way I live. And he says, look at the life I have. It is so good. And in my sin, I have accomplished these things. I have made this for myself. In our sin, we call God a fool. But I think the greatest problem with our sin is this, that when we sin, we reach for the crown off of the father's head and say, I need to be king of my life. I need to be ruler of my life. I know what's best for me. And in our selfishness, we begin to place ourselves on the throne and say, move out of the way, Father, because I know what I should be doing. I need to be ruler. Our sin is a selfish, disgusting thing. Just understand that God hates sin, right? He hates sin. Now, I'm not talking about how 99% of Americans hate the New England Patriots, right? Except for those that are oddities around the country and all that live in Massachusetts, right? Right, they all, you know, we all like, man, I hate the Patriots. We know they're cheaters, that they're completely immoral. I mean, look at their owner. We're not going there. Just, I'm gonna leave it at that and walk on, uh, right? And yet at the end of the season, they get a, they get a Super Bowl trophy. I'm like, oh, so we, you know, like, oh, I hate the Patriots. But God doesn't hate sin in the same way. Lauren and I, in 2013, we bought this house on one acre of land. It was our little piece of the American dream, right? It was awesome. We were out in the country, and we found out day one of moving there that our neighbors had dogs that were kin to the pigs that Jesus cast demons into. Um, <laughs> What I think happened, and this is, you're not going to find this in the Bible, this is just my assumption, is that some of the pigs didn't run into the water and drown. Some of them shot up the hill and went and started creating some weird breed of dogs with the pigs that were demon possessed, all so that they could move in next door to us. (laughs) So it was really bad, and so they didn't have a fence, and they just let these dogs just go. And they were like the most territorial dogs you've ever seen in your life. They had Lauren one time. So we lived out in the country, right? We had this acre and more way out. One time, Lauren went to check the mail at our mailbox and they felt threatened by her. And she was encroaching on their territory, which was in front of our house, they had her pinned down in like the drainage ditch out in front of next to our street. And I came out with a baseball bat and I never hit the dogs, hear me, hear me. I never hit the dogs, but I will say with just full honesty, I thought about it. I thought long and hard about it. They were so bad. I chased them all the way back to their house and in just anger and just protection from my wife, I looked at the owner and I said, these dogs are a problem. I hate your dogs. And he's like, you just need to meet them one-on-one. Anyways, they were so bad story. They brought him over one at a time. And he said, "This one one of them was very kind and very sweet when it was just by herself. And the other one, he literally said, oh, this is Josie. She's a crackhead. <laughs> and when the owner of the dog refers to the dog as a crackhead, you know it's demon possessed, right? Like at the end of it, you just go, somebody was nearby, somebody cast out a demon and it fled to that dog. And then they moved in next to us. They were so bad that my, uh, a friend of mine who's a police officer here in the Dallas gave me a can of police pepper spray. And he's like, be careful on the black dog. You, you'll see the orange pepper spray all over its face. So just use it on the golden retriever if you have to. And I was like, oh, that's funny, but okay. Uh, and I never did. I never had to, but, but man, we hated those dogs, Right absolutely hated those dogs. I was going, man, these are the worst dogs on the planet. Finally, they put up a fence and it kind of solved the problem. But I would say as much as we hated those dogs, as much as I wanted to hit it with a baseball bat because they were aggressive. And I knew that at some point, if we didn't do something about it, they were going to attack my children. And they did come after our boys playing in the backyard one time. And I was about to go Brian Urlacher on those things and just tackle them or something. I didn't know what I was going to do. Anyways, As much as we hated those dogs and as much as we would just get so angry and so frustrated with them and think these these people need to get a grip and the the neighbors were great. They were wonderful people. Their dogs were terrible and we hated them. And yet that fails in comparison to the hatred that God has for sin. God hates sin so much that he was willing to send his son to die on a cross so that there could be a final solution for the problem. I was never willing to give up a child to to be done with these dogs. As much as I hated those dogs, I was never gonna give one of my children up so that the dogs could be dealt with. It was never gonna happen. See, God hates sin so much that he was willing to give his son, he was willing to give his son to end the problem. When God created the earth, he said, it is good, right? He stepped back, he looked at what he had created and he was like, man, it is good. And yet, when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't even spare the garden and say, no, the garden's too good, the garden's too good. No, he kicked them out of the garden. He shut the gates. He put angels in front of it to guard over it so they couldn't re-enter into it. And he said, because of your sin, I don't even want you back in that place. And he shut it off. And then, as the sin problem progressed, he didn't even spare the earth. He only spared one family and some animals, and he flooded all of it. This thing that he said was so good because of what had infiltrated it, he was willing to wipe out everything and start again. Because he hates sin. He hates sin. I have a friend that's a, uh, he's a youth pastor at another church and his wife uh, works for a large corporation. And so from time to time, they go on these, he'll go on these corporate trips with his wife and they go to different places. And there's one guy in particular that works in the office that just is is borderline obnoxious, right? He always gives my friend a hard time about being a pastor and just kind of like, just constantly just messing with him, just trying to poke and jab and just and trying to be funny, right? And at some point, my friend is just like, oh, it just gets old. You know, it's just like, come on, dude. And he told him one time in a sense of just like flaunting the sinful nature that he, he walks in and lives in. He said, you need to have me come speak to your students. And he was like, why would I ever have you come and preach to our students? And he's like, this guy is is always just, Anytime they go on a trip, the dude's just hammered. And it's like, work's paying for it. and getting toasted, right? And just like every single night, just, just plaster. And just, and then has like the foulest, crudest mouth and just everything, talk, just everything. And Corey's like, oh, this is, okay. Just a little more and we can go home. And you know, I can kind of just get, just like wash it off or something, I don't know. And he said, and he won't quit and he won't quit. And he finally so well, he said to him, why would I let you speak to our students? And he's like, man, they need to know what a good sinner looks like. They need to know what it's like to really sin. They need to, I could show them how to do it. And he was like, "I I would never do, you know, and we kind of, we can kind of laugh at the situation, the story, but don't you know that that grieves the heart of the father? Don't you know that that grieves the heart of the father? Because he says, man, I hate sin and I hate what you're in and what you're walking in. And I have something greater for you in this life that if you would just trust me and and surrender to me. And and we find this this sense of, of, of grieving that the father has over sin. He hates sin so much. He was willing to let his son die on the cross. I feel that no person can fully know the sinfulness of sin. We don't get it. We try our best to grasp and understand it. And, and, and by the grace of God, we, we, try, we walk outside of sin, right? And we have the freedom to walk away from sin. And, and it's through that, we, we get that aspect of it. But I don't know that any of us ever fully grasp the sinfulness of sin. In fact, I, I, I think Jesus recognized that in his words when he said, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them because they, I'll say it this way. It's as if he said, Father, forgive them because they truly have no idea how much this sin they are living in is hurting them. They don't know the depths of the selfishness in which they're walking in. They don't realize the separation they are causing. They do not know what they're doing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.8, he said, none of the rulers of this age understood it for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul's saying, if these men understood what was going on, if the rulers of the world at that time understood what was happening, they would not have allowed it. If they grasped it, if they understood it, it would have never taken place. If they fully understood what was happening, it would have never happened. I think if the men that were nailing Jesus to the cross would have had a moment of realization and understanding, it would have softened even the hardest of hearts in that moment. I feel that they would have had to drop the hammer and the nails and back away and say, oh God, forgive me. I don't know what I'm doing. And in that moment, we understand why it had to happen. We know that there was a sin problem, therefore it was necessary. But I believe that if those men knew what they were doing, they would have walked away. And in the same way, he continues that prayer forward, not just for the men right there, but for those of us here even now, because it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. He says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He's saying from now until the end of time, all the sin committed, all the sins that are coming, I take them all on me in this moment now. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because God hates sin so much, he endured the worst pain he could know in putting his own son on the cross. There's a phrase spoken in a moment. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Spoken in a moment, but it rings true for all of eternity as as each new generation comes forward and the world of sin has entered, his his words still ring out. Father, they don't know what they're doing. And there's those times in our lives where we find ourselves wondering God where are you? God where are you? Why do I feel distant from you? And my, my my question first and foremost is search your heart. Have you searched your heart? Have you looked to find is there bitterness? Is is, is there hatred? Is there is there some sin lying there because God wants to be separate from sin. And even even in our walk with the Lord and we have those moments where where we give in to the temptation, right? And we fall to our flesh and God is going, hey, come on. We can be better than that. We can do better than that. We can do better. He's like, don't you know what your sin did? Don't you know what I had to do because of the sin you're walking in? Do you understand the depths? And Jesus, when he prayed, they don't know what they're doing. He's saying, Father, don't hold this all against them. Don't hold this all against them, but bring forgiveness because they don't understand the depth of the sinfulness that they're living in. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The depth of our sin is overwhelmed by the height of the grace of Jesus. And I pray that my words are anointed as I continue in this and talk about the limitless heights of his grace. I think that's what is so great about this message is that, man, we can come heavy on sin and we can talk about the depth and we can talk about the despair that it brings and just the, the, the complete uh, uh, awfulness that it is and, and what, it, what it brings with it and, the, and the, the hurt and the hatred and the selfishness and all these things that are wrapped up in sin and all of this stuff. And then we have that incredible moment where we get to step back and say, but remember he said, Father, forgive them. And the outpour of grace. The outpouring of grace. It's overwhelming at times, right? When you stop and you put it into perspective and realize how awful we were or how awful you may be in this moment that you are not so bad. You are not so bad. I would say this, I guarantee you, no person in this room literally put a nail through the hands of Jesus And yet, forgiveness was extended even to those that did. How incredible is that? And it wasn't, again, just the forgiveness of those right there. He didn't speak specific names or acts in that forgiveness. He didn't exclude specific names or acts. He says, Father, forgive them. His words were not spoken in a manner that that only allowed grace for some. And he didn't speak in a way that excluded anyone from his grace. When Jesus prayed, he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive those that still have the imprint of the hammer in their hands and forgive those who handed me over to death and forgive those that are yet to be born and forgive those that have yet to utter a word. Forgive those who have no idea of the sin they walk in. Forgive those, forgive those, forgive those, forgive them. These men that mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross, their, their hearts are so, so hard and cold, unaware of their need for forgiveness. The very blood of Jesus on their skirts and hands still mocking him. You saved others. Why don't you save yourself? While well, they divided up what little he had at the foot of the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He said, they are men who if the gospel were preached to them, would reject it. If Christ were offered to them, they would refuse him. If they were moved by some qualms of conscience, they would stifle them. If they were wept over by the minister, they would ridicule his tears. If they were pleaded for by the church, they would laugh at the pleadings. And yet the Savior says, Father, forgive them. Once again, an understanding of the love of Jesus today that maybe you have not yet grasped. There is no distance you can run from God, no depth you can go to escape Him. There is no sin so great that He won't extend His love and grace to you. He even offered forgiveness to the very ones who betrayed Him. He prayed forgiveness for all, the worst of the worst, and even those that we would deem as the best of the best no one excluded, no one withheld from. He extends his grace. His words open the door for grace. Think of that. His words open the door for grace. I think it's incredible that that we find and we know that, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now interceding on our behalf, right? As he goes to the Father and he's praying for us, praying for us, praying for us. And what we see in this moment was the beginning of that process of intercession for all of us, right? And, and that we have recorded. And he's, he's interceding on our behalf. He's going to the Father and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. And he's saying, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. And so as we then acknowledge our need of forgiveness... As we acknowledge our need to repent and our need of a savior, the forgiveness has been asked for and it's that opening then of our words to receive grace. His words spoke out grace, our words allow it. It's incredible that that moment and that single act and that that, that simple words that he, he prayed, he said, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. the statement, again, Spurgeon, he says, where he loves us, he loves us for his own sake, not because of the worthiness of the object of his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us because he loves us, not because we deserve his love. Not because we deserve, what what have I done to deserve his love, right? And yet he loves us anyways, it's, it's our sin that put him on the cross, but it was his love that kept him there. They mock him. They say, you saved others, save yourself, save yourself. But because of the love that he had for you and I, he denied himself the right to save himself, to ask for the angels to come. Cause you know, the father's heart was grieving as he watched his son die. And if he would have said the prayer, if he would have asked in a moment for him to take that from him in that moment, after he had already said, Father, take it from me, but not my will, your will be done. And he had surrendered to that moment. And if he, he would have gone to that extreme and said, okay, I can't do this any longer. This is more than I can bear. He would have said, take him, get him right now. Pull him off that cross, be done. But he didn't ask that. He said, Father, I understand. And my love for these people goes far beyond anything I've ever experienced or known. And I'm willing to take it for them, forgive them. Forgive them. Father, forgive them. The source of grace is found in the God of grace, not in the receiver of grace. Like I said, it was his words that opened the door for grace. It's our words that allow it to be received. God pours out his grace. And he's gone, Jesus has gone to the Father and asked for our forgiveness. And it is our moment of turning and repentance and asking for forgiveness in which it's poured out on us. I don't want us to misunderstand his words that because Jesus spoke forgiveness over people in that moment, that now all are forgiven and all is pardoned. Yes, it is there and available. It is waiting for anyone who turns to the Father and says, forgive me. I see your son as my savior. I I acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, that he gave his life for me. And now I can walk in his grace because of what he's done for me. Today, my question is, do you need to pray that prayer and say, Father, forgive me? Father, forgive me. sometimes that's that's a heavy moment to get to and and it requires humility where we have to sacrifice our our selfish pride and, and, and maybe lay aside the sins that we're walking in and we go, but I can't let go. It's got me so gripped and so bound. And Jesus is saying, step into my forgiveness and walk in my freedom. Receive forgiveness and walk in freedom. I don't know the condition of your heart. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. I don't know if maybe you've come close to the moment of of repentance and maybe you've just kind of stepped back. Maybe you're hovering on the edge. Maybe you're teeter tottering and going, what do I do? Do I say this? Do I not? Do I withhold or do I go for it? Do I say, Father, forgive me? Or do I say, I'm gonna wait one more time, one more week and see what happens. I want you to understand again, the weight of the sin that you carry. You may say, man, I'm so far from God. I'm so far removed from where God wants me to be. I'm so far from what he has called me to be and who he wants me to be. I'm so far away. And here's what I would say to you is that it is not as far as you think because it's just one simple moment and all of a sudden you are closer to the father than you've ever known. You may walk thousands of miles away from God, but all you simply have to do is turn around and he's right there. That's the most mind-blowing thing in in the world to me is how undeserving we are of the grace of the Father, yet it's there. Uh, It just blows my mind. The moment I go, oh, I messed up. And I turn and I'm like, oh, you still love me. You still extend your grace to me. It does not matter how far you walk or how much you've done or what you think you've done is so bad and so wrong. I promise you you have never physically nailed uh, uh, Jesus' hand to the cross. There is grace. There is forgiveness. But understand that where sin remains unrepented it only causes further and further divide. Greater separation. And Jesus is it's waiting for you. Forgiveness is waiting for you. It's waiting for you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.